Hi, I'm Jayan Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode is on an important order by the Supreme Court last week which ordered the center to grant permanent commission to women officers in the Indian army irrespective of their years of service. It also said that women officers would be eligible for command postings. This happened on February 17th. So just a quick look back before we start. The Supreme Court was upholding a 2010 Delhi High Court verdict on this issue which the central government had challenged at the time. So the army and the center have been dragging their feet on granting women command positions for 10 years now. A number of reasons have been given. The latest position by this government is that women officers can't be granted command positions because they are physiologically weaker than men. The court came down heavily on the government for this and said that this position was discriminatory and reinforced stereotypes. One note to add here is that the court's order still doesn't apply to women officers in combat roles and that's something that will be discussed today so to understand just how much of a watershed moment this is and why there has been such resistance to women in command and combat roles in the indian army over the years i think requires a historian's perspective and today's interview was done by my colleague anuradha raman in delhi she is in conversation with dr shrinath raghavan who is professor at Ashoka University and one of India's finest military historians. Good morning and welcome to In Focus. My name is Anuradha Raman and let's begin. I'm joined today by Srinath Raghavan who is a professor of history and international relations at the Ashoka University. Let us also say that he's an ex-army man. Welcome Srinath. Good to be here Anuradha. Sushmanat the supreme court last week um granted permanent commission in its order and command position to women officers a decision which has been hailed as a watershed moment is it a watershed moment well it certainly is because in the first instance it is the outcome of a process which began at least as far back as uh, 2003 and i'm talking here in terms of the legal process first pil on grant of permanent commission to women in the indian army was filed before the delhi high court now it's taken 17 years to get here and it it has been a very long journey and it has been a fairly important one because uh in a sense it goes to the heart of what it means to be an armed force in the 21st century in many ways rinath it is a telling state of affairs the prime minister modi's government had promised this 2 years ago and yet it took the supreme court to prod the government to act and to nudge it towards implementing this whole decision so does that come as a cause for concern the inordinate delay that has taken place to implement this decision finally although we know we we are still concerned about whether it will be implemented right away within the 3 month time that has been given by the supreme court well the supreme court uh, sorry the high court judgment goes back to 2010 and it right. already talked about uh, permanent commission being granted now it is very interesting that you know the high court order was never stayed 
but the ministry of defense did not implement it either so in a sense the government effectively dragged its feet for about a decade uh, the political leadership's uh, signal about grant of permanent commission and command positions to women was an important one but the fact that even then the ministry of defense at the behest of the army leadership actually held out until the supreme court came in is an important indication of what the state of our relationship between political bureaucratic and military uh, leadership really is i was coming to that yeah 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 because you know it is important to recognize that the indian armed forces have had almost a free run when it comes to the management of their internal affairs political leaders are extremely wary of interfering in what are seen as the internal organizational or operational issues pertaining to the armed forces now in my own work i've pointed out that this is actually a legacy of india's defeat against china in 1962 when the political leadership of the day was you know was told that it had interfered in the uh, operational affairs of the army leading to that debacle and it was a critique which has been widely internalized by both the political leadership as well as the military leadership and has in in a sense been instituted in our particular model of civil military relations and i think this particular incident is a very good example because you know you see that in you know after the political leadership has given an assurance that permanent commissions will be granted including command positions in 2019 which is about a year before the supreme court's uh, judgment comes in the ministry of defense actually passes an order saying that yes we will grant permanent commissions for up to 10 uh, you know branches of the army but command positions will not be granted so in a sense there is a continuous reluctance to accept or accede to what the political leadership had actually stated and the fact that the political leadership is not able to uh, get the army to fall into line with what the political instructions are and it actually is left to the supreme court to then lay down the law is i think uh, something of a worrying signal so are you are you hinting that the political leadership in this particular case has been far more progressive uh uh then the army which in many ways seem to be a kind of what which appears to be a very sexist and a rigid hierarchical um organization would it be well, right to say that let's tackle both of those first about the political leadership i think uh it is fair to say that the our current political leadership as with most politicians are much more attuned to what the you know trends in any society are they know that they have to carry democratic opinion with them when they are appealing to the electorate and so on right so in that sense uh, the idea that you could actually tell women that having served for 14 plus years in the arm, uh, army they just were not eligible for permanent commission or that having been given permanent commission they could somehow not hold the same command positions that their male counterparts did was not something that would be broadly acceptable uh, in the india of 21st century i think the political leadership recognizes they sense the change in broader trends in society uh and and norms uh, on these kinds of issues so i think their you know instinct is primarily political and is driven by that but at the same time they have to balance the institutional requirements and considerations which are being put forward by the military and there it is i think fair to say not on the basis of any imputation but just on the basis of the submissions which were made to the supreme court on this particular issue by the ministry of defense which of course reflects the view of the armed forces and the leadership of the armed forces uh were highly regressive uh, very patriarchal in the way that they conceived of uh, you know what the role of a woman in society today is 
and uh, i think it was totally uh, ignorant of what the broader trends in terms of women's performance in the workforce not just uh, in civil society but also in the military across the world is so i think you know on all three counts the army uh, leadership showed itself to be uh, quite regressive in the way that they conceived of a very important section of their own officer cadre and also not cognizant really of fundamental principles of fairness equality and justice in the context of a 21st century army in fact just before the verdict you had tweeted that the government submission in the court in many ways mirrored the colonial mentality that the british had towards the indian soldiers yes i was saying well, in the context of trying to point out uh, anuradha my my comment on uh, twitter was uh, primarily an attempt to point out that you know these kinds of debates have been with us for quite a long time hmm. you know if you go back to the uh, colonial period when an indian army was raised out of indian soldiers the british government until very late in the day which is to say until pretty much the uh, you know end of the first world war and thereafter was highly resistant to giving commissioned officer positions to indian men and the argument which used to be made back then was the indian soldier will not take commands very easily coming from an indian so in a sense there was the sense of a racial hierarchy which underpinned the relationship between the officer class of the british army indian army which was primarily male white and the soldiers and mm-hmm. all that the indians were capable of being held were what we used to be known as viceroy's commissioned officers you know today we call them junior commissioned officers so they are basically intermediaries between the sepoys and the jawans and the officer class and it is worth recalling that this debate about indianizing the indian army which is to say to have indian male officers in the indian army was one which the indian nationalists and various uh, other you know tendencies in indian politics uh, really had to fight for several decades before it came about let's recall that it's only in the early 1930s that the indian military academy is established only thereafter did indians in significant numbers start getting commission and i'm talking about indian men before that only a handful would be picked and selected and sent to the royal military academy in sandhurst in england uh, in order to get commissions and even there there were all kinds of discriminations between king's commissioned officers and indian commissioned officers subsequently it was a second world war which really forced the hand of the british government of india because they just needed many more people uh, to staff a very large expanding army now it was in that context really that indian men started being inducted in increasing numbers as officers a trend of course which continues into the post colonial and independent period so my point of raising this background was to say that the indian army has undergone such large scale changes uh, you know which have gone against what were seeming norms of the time there was a time when norms of racial hierarchy were accepted to be correct just as today the norms of gender hierarchy are being touted by the indian army's leadership in its submission to the supreme court and again let's remember that in the early 1990s when the idea of first granting short service or special entry scheme for women uh, in the army was uh, you know mooted there was a quite a lot of opposition and i still remember the debate from that time you know uh, as a short service commissioned officer myself i've had uh, women officer trainee colleagues uh, with me during my uh, training period and uh, you know the debates about whether they will be able to adapt what does it mean for the culture of the army what kinds of exceptions will we need to carve out 
all of those were quite heated even back in the day so this has been a fairly long journey and i think in the year 2020 for the government of india to make such a submission even if it is at the behest of the military leadership strikes me as being particularly repressive and also srinath are you kind of uh, this is still halfway women uh, are not yet in combat in leading positions we are still we have still not really reached uh, where we where women can easily go and they have been posted in highly sensitive areas and highly militarized zones too so what why where is the where is the problem now how much do women have to let's say prove themselves uh, to be actually uh, posted in combat in leading positions in combat yes i i think that's the next frontier really in terms of where things are going to move and i think it's fair to say that the supreme court in its own judgment while it alludes to the fact that you know women are not yet represented in the combat does not really get into that particular issue so my sense is that there will continue to be a legal challenge perhaps uh, on the induction of women officers uh, into the combat uh, you know arms of the army itself now what exactly is the problem and the problem is always you know presented as one of simple you know physical biological requirements of being able to serve in a combat zone now can i, can I just stop you there for a minute we have heard generals say that you know it, uh, they would be in let's say in uh, very close proximity to male soldiers which would lead to a lot of discomfort number 1 number 2 would be in the scenario being captured uh it it is even more stressful when a woman soldier is captured than let's say a uh, a male soldier how, how do you see these arguments well the first point about women being in close proximity uh etc they are already in close proximity in uh many cases and i don't think that argument really stands water uh nor does the second one to my mind again you know we can have differing interpretations or you know views on whether it makes uh you know a hell of a lot of difference whether it's a woman soldier who is captured as a prisoner of war as opposed to a, a male soldier but the argument and the position that i would take is that these are occupational hazards if anyone wants to wear the uniform of the indian armed forces and serve in combat these are hazards that they have to accept this goes with the role and definition of the duty and if our women officers are willing and eager to take up these roles and they will only join combat arms if they are interested in doing so then why should anyone be in a position to judge whether they are being captured as a pow is any worse than that of their male counterparts being captured also in many ways is the army a little uh, kind of two steps behind than let's say the navy and the air force uh where women do i mean women we have we do have women fighter pilots don't we that's right we do have oh. women fighter pilots and i think that was an important thing right. having said that i think the army's argument would be the nature of combat in the army uh is quite different from that uh in the air and navy which i think is an important issue and it cannot be you know i don't think you can you can sort of equate everything um uh, on the same but i'd like to come back to the point which i was making earlier which was about you know the i think the at the heart of the argument about whether women should be given combat roles or not is simply an argument that listen this just demands much greater levels of physical biological endurance which which women just may not be able to you know be up to it and there are all these arguments about saying oh what will happen if you know women commanding officers or you know women officers in combat units want to take maternity leave and so on 
and i think it's important to address this point head on by saying that you know one of the ways in which systems of patriarchy typically tend to perpetuate themselves whether they are in the armed forces or anywhere else in the society is clearly by always making these kinds of ostensibly natural distinctions of biological sex and gender right and i think we only need to look at say the performance of women in various other kinds of things whether it is in the central armed police or in uh, the police forces etc we can see that that's belied i'd say even look at the performance of women in competitive sports i mean in just the past 20 years the kinds of performance that women can do in terms of physical terms in terms of the records which have been broken even by indian women uh, athletes has been quite spectacular and why is that happening it is happening because biology is not something which is there as a given it is in some ways molded by the culture and society and its expectations as well so if we are going to say that listen this is the standard that we expect of any officer of the indian army who wants to serve in a combat unit and if women officers are held to the same standard should they want to serve then believe me they will be able to do it if they want to so i don't think this argument that there is some kind of a natural biological division which is insuperable uh, really makes that much sense biology is not something natural and given in quite the way that is being made out in this particular context srinath what is uh, i i mean since since you are a military historian in many ways how how um, what is the experience let's say been in us or let's israel or europe when it comes to the induction of women in command positions or in combat well you know it is actually a fact that you know women in combat position combat uh, arms in most armed forces uh, across the world uh, have not been that many but again you know the key point is that we need to make something of a start right and if you say take the example of a western army which i think is perhaps the most integrated in a sense of in gender integrated would perhaps be the canadian army i think women there uh, are about 18% of the officer corps as a whole but they are still i think less than 2% when it comes to the officers who are serving in combat arms right so that kind of a lag and disparity tends to be there and i think you know these are things which uh, will change and evolve over a period of time provided women are given uh, a level playing field uh, in that particular context and again you know i'd like to come back to some of the older debates that we've had uh, within the indian army you know for the longest time the indian army used to operate on something called the idea of a martial race there was a sense that there were only people of certain castes and communities in india who were capable of actually fighting so the fighting arms would always be stopped from you know certain communities in north and northwest india certain castes effectively right so you're talking about jat sikhs jats rajputs dogras punjabi muslims and so on and uh, even when the ideology of martial race so to speak was done away with in official terms uh, the fighting arms still continue to recruit to a very large extent from these communities right and it took a very long period of time before that balance uh, was started tilting in other directions so my point in making all of this is that as far as combat role is concerned the first step that we need is of parity is of saying that there is one standard so long as you know women or men officers are able to meet that standard they should be able to serve in combat arms and thereafter it is a matter of time before these kinds of changes start reflecting in terms of overall organizational composition mm. 
uh, uh, Srinath, by my own uh, research done in my newspaper, there is admittedly a shortfall in the army. Um, there are about 1,653 lady officers uh, as compared to 40,825 strong military force, which also tells us that the implementation of the Supreme Court order is not likely to happen soon. You know, and the and the, and the and the fact that uh, discussions should happen even as the army faces a shortfall tells us really that uh, that we have a long battle ahead as far as the women are concerned. Would you agree? Well, on the point of whether the army is going to implement the Supreme Court's order, I think the army chief uh, General Narabne has given a very clear statement. He has said that this is an enabling order. And that they have a plan to implement it. So I really do not think the armed forces, uh, uh, the army uh, leadership is minded any longer to hold out on granting permanent commission plus command positions. Right. As I said, the issue of induction of women into combat arms is a secondary question. And if the army leadership were to take a broad and, uh, you know, a more institutional perspective of it, they should just see the writing on the wall. If in the future this issue comes up before the Supreme Court, I am hard pressed to imagine how the courts, whether the courts might actually not force the hands of the army leadership even on granting combat role to women. And in fact, some very uh, thoughtful senior military leaders like General uh, Prakash Menon and others have already been pointing out saying that instead of waiting for the courts to give orders and pass structures against the army, why doesn't the army leadership itself start thinking about how to implement this in a phased and in a doable manner for them? Now, the second point, which is about, you know, the ratio of uh, women officers to men officers in the officer corps. Yes, it is absolutely and extremely skewed. But that is also partly because, you know, women were always kept out of uh, permanent commissions uh, until this point of time. And even when they were granted permanent commissions, they were not granted uh, combat responsibility, right. uh, command responsibilities, right? Which then means that there is very little incentive for a women officer to want to serve, you know, beyond your tenure of short service commission, which is 10 plus four years. A, if you do not get permanent commission, B, if you do not get a pension and C, if you do not get the same, you know, command uh, responsibility and chances as male counterparts too. And let's remember that, you know, command positions in the army are done through a fairly rigorous process of selections through selection boards. That's a fairly well-established system. In fact, many men officers fail to make it to command positions. So, uh, you know, I think it's it's important to create a structure and a system which is fair and provides for a level playing field. And then I'm sure, you know, over a period of time, some of these balances will tend to get redressed. Thank you, Srinath. On that positive note, let's hope the army looks a little better the next time we have a discussion on gender parity. Thank you so much, Srinath, for joining Thank me today. Thank you so today. much. Good to Thank talk you. to you. Bye.